So welcome again to another broadcast for Thornhill Baptist Church. And uh, this is Pastor Zig speaking to you from an... And I uh, wish that all the fathers have a great time this weekend. I got, a, some, I got some presents from my son Mark. It was a package with some visors. I wear a lot of visors. And uh, this one says, World's Greatest Dad Semi-Finalist. And this other one says, World's Greatest Dad Honorable Mention. So you can see that I get no respect. But actually, I asked him for, for those visors and uh, look forward to wearing them this weekend. But enough about me. This is uh, episode two of our current series called Refresh. It's all about looking at new beginnings in our spiritual lives. And this one is entitled Sasquatch in the Wilderness. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to uh, look at your word. Thank you for the relevant way it uh, talks to us in terms of our personal lives and also in terms of what's happening in our society. And uh, may we hear your voice as we listen carefully to what you have to say to us in your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, right about now, we're all hoping that life will get back to normal soon. That's so we can go to the gym on a Saturday afternoon and then to church on Sunday morning. And that uh, after that, we can, I can at least maybe go to Strecker's house for lunch and then watch a soccer game at Hellard Field in the afternoon. I can hardly wait for that. But the question is, will life ever get back to normal? Well, I hope not. I hope that this crisis is actually a wake-up call for all half-hearted believers, for sporadic church attenders, for all double-minded compromisers, for all drifters and dropouts. We need to have a new beginning in our spiritual lives where people start taking God seriously and where reverence is restored. And that would require a turn of about 180 degrees from where we are now. The only problem is I can't do very much about that because I'm not in charge. I'm not the master of ceremonies. I'm not even on the planning committee. I can't push the train back onto the tracks. The only thing I can control is what's happening in my life. So at the very least, I want to experience a new beginning. I need to refresh my faith, and I hope you do too. But what would that look like? Well, I'm glad I asked that question because the Bible always has the answer. And today as we continue our study in the life of John the Baptist, we're going to see how God used him for that very purpose because John was the master of ceremonies announcing the most decisive turning point in history, the transition between law and grace. Last week we read about the angel Gabriel who brought breaking news to an old priest after a 400-year communications blackout. Zechariah was told that God was up to something something good. And it all began with the birth 
of his son John. In Luke chapter 1, verse 80, we read, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. John's father was a priest, which meant that he would also become part of the priesthood. It was a tradition and a great privilege. And it meant that you didn't have to take any aptitude tests or fill out job applications. You didn't have to waste time trying to find yourself or fulfill your dreams because your destiny was already determined. John's future was defined by the traditions of his faith, except that this time it would be different. God was up to something new. He was pouring new wine into new wineskins, except that it didn't involve wine. So John did not spend his time at the seminary writing essays about how Ecclesiastes was either written by Solomon or by someone else named Solomon. Nor was he in the temple examining sacrificial lambs and hurting sinners and answering questions of anxious pilgrims. Uh, the washrooms are over there. None of that happened because John would take a road less traveled. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Now in our culture, one of our main objectives is to develop our mind. We want people to think that we are above average. As Stephen Wright points out, Half of the people we know are below average. So that should be an encouragement to us. And of course, you're unique just like everybody else. Because these days, it's all about our IQ. But the irony is that you can be the smartest person in the room and still be a fool because Psalm 14 verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's why in the ministry, Education is important, but it doesn't substitute for anointing. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and that was John's priority. It says he became strong in spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Because whatever fills us controls us. Do not be controlled by your appetites or addictions, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that relates to the angel's instructions, which emphasized in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his birth. Wine could represent all the various desires of the flesh, the kind of indulgences that weaken us spiritually. John was to live a life where he did, would deny himself and instead delight in the Lord. And so John followed some of the disciplines of the Nazarites, the people who learned to say no to some stubborn habits. In our culture, a lot of teenagers want to experiment you know, to see what it's like. Everything from cannabis to sexual carnality. 
from a tequila sunrise to a crystal meth nightmare. Just try it. The first sample is free. What have you got to lose? Unfortunately, that's kind of like serving your sinful nature a gallon of Red Bull. Whenever you energize your flesh, you weaken the spirit. And it may take years to reestablish equilibrium. Some never restore the balance of power. So don't enable your flesh, your sinful nature. It's the worst thing about you. Paul wrote this to the church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 to 25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. These are decisions we make between the Spirit and the flesh. And we make these decisions all the time. For example, if, if you're a serious bodybuilder, you discipline yourself to work out every day. And so you say no to various indulgences like uh, maybe shortcake with fresh strawberries in rich syrup with extra whipped cream washed down by a triple thick vanilla milkshake. Anyone for seconds? Mmm. Oh. Where was I? See, those are the cravings of the flesh. And of course, strawberry shortcake is only an entry-level temptation. The flesh can feed on so many different things, and it escalates. And when it comes to our culture, we're suffering from a sensuality overdose. Virtually, we have sexual insanity taking place right now because anything goes. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't conform to the pattern of the world. And so, young people, if you're pure and not promiscuous, good for you. Because that means you're still in mint condition. Don't cheapen that. I saw a t-shirt a little while ago that said, Virginity rocks. Amen to that. And for those who have temptation, there is forgiveness and cleansing through Jesus Christ. But remember what he said to the woman who committed adultery. Go and sin no more. The world offers the flesh everything it could possibly want. But John chose a better way. He chose to deny the cravings of his flesh and instead grow strong in the spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 16 and 17, it says, So I say to you, live by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. As followers of Christ, we have two natures. We still have an old sinful nature that just loves to sin. And we have a new spiritual nature that can't sin because it's God's nature within us. And so we have to choose between them. God, <clears throat> John made a healthy choice. And to do that, he went into voluntary quarantine 
and did some extreme social distancing. He left the noise and distractions of city life and lived out in the Jordan Valley in the Judean desert. This is an incredible place. This is where David hid from Saul's posse. You have steep canyons. You have the the caves of Qumran. You have the fortress of Masada. You have the eerie salt formations in the Dead Sea that all leads to the lush green Jordan Valley. It's a great place to be alone because to really hear God often requires solitude and silence. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still? Well, for how long? How many minutes? Hours? Days? Weeks? Well, that's impossible. John must have been bored out of his mind. What did he do? There were no video games, no Instagram, no YouTube, no text messages. We get so addicted to sensory overstimulation that we just couldn't handle solitude. And I admit, at first, it was very hard for me. I went through withdrawal. You think you're going to have a nervous breakdown. But it was so worth it. And for me now, sort of an uninterrupted three hours is minimum. At least three times a week. Without any screens or anything like that. Just solitude, listening to God. Whether you're cycling or walking or, or sitting on a bench overlooking the city. So what do you do when, when you're in solitude? Well, you listen. And life be the hurricane of wilderness, wildfire of impatience and frustration. In solitude, you hear a lot of static. But when that noise finally dies down, you'll hear the whisper of God. And it is so worth it. In fact, you soon become addicted to solitude. You hunger and thirst for uninterrupted time with God because He has something that no one else has. He has the words of life. Every word fills your being with joy and hope. There's peace and love. His words give us courage and victory. And there's no apps for that. Peter said to Jesus, We will not go anywhere else because you have the words of life. Well, what does that mean? Of course, life means many things. But there's one word that best captures the essence of life. And I think that's the word energy. Because when you have energy, you feel alive. That's why coffee is so popular and Pepsi and Coke, they give you energy. And when you don't have energy, you feel like you're half dead. That's one of the problems with depression because depression definitely has a mental health component. But I think body chemistry also has something to do with it. And if you're struggling with depression, get a blood test. Your iron levels could be low. That's why Iron Man never gets depressed. The Hulk gets depressed, 
Thor and Captain America get depressed, but not Iron Man. He has energy to burn. So in the spiritual realm, we need to monitor our energy levels. We need to feed and energize the spirit. And if you want some good ideas on how to do that, read Psalm 119. It's filled with good ideas. And while we energize the spirit, we have to starve and strangle and crucify the flesh. When our sinful nature is feeble, it can't overwhelm us with temptations and addiction. And that's what solitude is good for, to feed our spirit, to energize our spirit, to strengthen our spirit. Now maybe it's just me, but I enjoy spending time with people who like me more than with those who detest me. That's just how I'm wired. And I found out that God likes me the most. I could almost say he loves me. I'm not sure I want to go quite that far. Is that even biblical? And yet, based on the amount of time he's willing to spend with me, I would have to say that God loves me so much, he can't take his eyes off of me. He enjoys being in my presence. He, he enjoys my sense of humor. He is thrilled when I obey. It's like parents with young children. What a delight it is. So happy Father's Day, James. I am probably one of the most boring people you could ever meet. But my Heavenly Father finds me endlessly entertaining. That's what solitude is all about. It's enjoying the presence of the one who loves you the most. It's spending time with the most interesting person in the universe. So don't feel sorry for John out there in the desert solitudes, missing out on all the fun. I envy him. What an opportunity he had. It doesn't get any better than that. Now, of course, John's flesh, his sinful nature, didn't enjoy the desert because there was nothing for it to do except to try to provoke some self-pity which didn't work because John's spirit was so energized by divine enthusiasm, so empowered by the Holy Spirit, that this was the best time of his entire life. But the desert, I mean, there's no stocks, there's no subway. How could you even survive? Well, Matthew chapter 3, verse 4 says, John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Locusts and wild honey? That sounds like the cafeteria food at the Bible school. Every Tuesdays and Thursdays you get locusts. And can you imagine what it takes to obtain wild honey? Ouch, ouch, ouch. This John was no wimp, but he had a well-balanced diet, locust, that's protein. Honey, that's carbohydrates. And remember, John, no honey until you finish your locusts. His clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. Obviously, he was no pampered, well-groomed TV preacher in an Armani suit with an entourage of handlers, enablers, flatterers, and bodyguards. John wore a coat of camel hair. 
He must have looked like a cross between Duck Dynasty and a Sasquatch. And John was unique, but not like everybody else. He was a maverick, didn't fit any stereotype. It says he lived in the desert. That differentiated him from the ultra-urbanized Herodians. He became strong in the spirit. That contrasted with the scribes and religious leaders who were often faking it. And it says he appeared publicly to Israel. That contradicted the way of the Essenes. Many scholars try to recruit John into the Essene community, but they were refugees from reality, fugitives running from the problem while they waited for the end. John was moving in the opposite direction. He was focused on a new beginning. The Essenes were waiting for the sunset. John was watching for the sunrise. So John the Baptist was not part of any abomination or denomination, and he wasn't a member of the Republican Party. And then he appeared publicly to Israel. You see, seasons of solitude are important for our own personal spiritual development. But ultimately, it's not about us. It's about making a difference in the lives of other people. We are not to be a reservoir, but a pipeline. So here in the desert, John was listening to God. He was learning that God's thoughts were higher than his thoughts as the heavens are higher than the earth. He was learning to think the way God thinks, not the way man thinks. And therefore, he now had the responsibility of telling others. It says in Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Itria, and a bunch of other names there I can't pronounce, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now some of the names here are really impressive because these were the powers and principalities of that age. You have Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip. This is the Mount Rushmore of the Roman Empire. And then there's Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, the biggest names in Israel. And among these towering figures, there was a strange-looking drifter out in the desert who would rise above them all because the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. And that's what made the difference. 2,000 years ago, the decrees of Tiberius and the doctrines of Caiaphas had the force of a mighty river, a flash flood overflowing its banks. But now there's nothing left but a dry creek bed, hardened by alkaline and amnesia. We don't remember much of what they said, but among the mumblings of these momentary monarchs and majesties, we hear a voice that transcends them all. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert, and he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
John's words shook the world, and their impact is still felt today. Just imagine 400 years of silence, not one word from God. Then all of a sudden, the strange-looking prophet appears and claims that God has given him a message. Matthew 3, verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent means to turn 180 degrees starboard. God was telling Israel, you're going in the wrong direction. Make a U-turn. Repent. But how can we be sure this is God's word? Maybe it was a false alarm. We've had a lot of those. It could be that the desert sun has fried his brain. He's hallucinating. How do we know this is the word of God? People are still asking that question. How do we know the authentic, authoritative, absolute truth? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How do we know the Bible is authoritative? How do we know it's authentic? How do we know this is absolute truth? Well, apologetics can help in that area. There's a lot of evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. There's all the archaeological sites, the fulfilled prophecy, the manuscripts, the historical records. One skeptic who tried to disprove the Gospels was finally forced to admit Jesus Christ was a real person, whether we like it or not. So apologetics is, is a great help in that regard. But I think the best test is more personal. Try it out. Read it with an open mind and an open heart. heart. Believe what it says. Behave accordingly. And if it's a hoax you will find out for yourself sooner rather than later. And if it's true, it will change your life. That's what happened to me. You know, Lou Wallace was a disgraced Civil War general. This was not the Avengers Civil War. This was the one back in the 1860s. He was an agnostic. He had no convictions about Christianity. But he was a writer, and he decided to take on a project where he wrote a book about the birth of Jesus. But it became a lot more than that. It became a lot bigger. In fact, it turned out to be the best-selling American novel of the 19th century. And Wallace explains, I found myself writing reverently and frequently with awe. His life was changing because he was studying the Word. And the novel he wrote is called Ben-Hur, the most influential Christian book of the 19th century. There's other examples like Frank Morrison, who was a skeptic, who set out to disprove the resurrection. But his research brought him to his knees, and he became a Christian and published a book entitled Who Moved the Stone, giving convincing evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. 
There's Lee Strobel, the investigative reporter who, uh, who was an atheist, but became a Christian as he studied the record of Jesus Christ and then finally published a book called The Case for Christ. You see, if it's true, it will change your life. So John claimed he had a message from God, and some did not believe it. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, Luke chapter 3, verse 7, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. There were those who felt they didn't need to repent. They were the descendants of Abraham. We are pre-approved, no credit check necessary. They didn't realize that God has no grandchildren, and he has no great-great-great-grandchildren. We don't get to heaven because of our parents' faith. They can't leave that to us in their will. Salvation is not merited or inherited. God only has children. So each of us has to make a personal decision. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The only question is, do I want to give God control? Or do I want to remain the master of my soul? Well, if the Bible is true, then we have to be willing to change, radically change. And that is such a controversial issue. It still is today. There are places in the world where it's illegal to convert to Christianity. It's a criminal offense with virtually on par with murder because the penalty can be capital punishment. The media doesn't report on that because they're too busy promoting their politically correct agenda. But missionaries are risking their lives to share the gospel. And you talk about strange days because this has become a big issue in Alberta. Conversion, inviting people to change their lives through faith in Christ is a punishable offense in certain cases with a $10,000 fine. And that's absurd because that's what Christianity is all about. Changing people's lives. Repenting the power to change. Everyone who becomes a believer needs to repent. They have to change. There's no exceptions. Verse 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. And John told them, you have to change. Verse 11, John answered, the man with two tunics should share them with him who has one or none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you were required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And even if you're hyper-religious or super spiritual, 
you also need to change. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Because that's the proof. If the Bible is the word of God, it will change your life. Because the Bible introduces you to Jesus Christ, who alone has the power to transform you from the inside out. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And that's how we know the Bible is the word of God, because it changes our life. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Some of the people who were listening to John's message did not believe it was from God. But many others did believe, and they were transformed. And to commemorate their conversion, John baptized them in the Jordan River. In fact, that became his brand. And it was a profound testimony of their salvation. And ever since then, it's been a dramatic reenactment, showing people outwardly what's happened to us inwardly, that we die to sin and then we're raised to new life in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 6 says, all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A new life, a new beginning. If you believe God's word, it will change you from the inside out and it won't cost you $10,000. A new pastor was asking his deacons about a rather difficult church member and they told him, well, we think he's a Christian, but it just doesn't show. Well, he needed to repent. If the Bible is the word of God, it will change your life so much that it will begin to show. And that's what this new beginning is all about. People need to see something different in us than the way we were before. We need to refresh our faith so that it shows. That's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you are the light of the world. The city set on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let your light shine before men that they may praise your Father in heaven. That's what a new beginning is all about. Let's pray. And Father, that challenge is so relevant right now because the world is getting darker and darker. Our society is just displaying all the evidence of advanced decay. And in that darkness, light is very evident. So the challenge to us is to let that shine through to show others 
what changes Jesus has made in our life so that they too may praise God, not give us credit, but praise God for the, the lives that have been changed and for the impact those lives have on this society. May we be people like that as we move into this new beginning. This is for your glory and honor, Jesus Christ. Amen.